Section 26 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 26. Chapter 8, Part 1. Chapter 8. The Dynasty of Valentinian and Theodosius the Great. Part 1. The imperial throne was once more vacant, 16th to the 17th of February, 364. But the army had learned the danger of a tumultuous election, and after the troops had advanced by an eight days' march to Nicaea, both the civil and military authorities weighed with anxious deliberation the rival claims of possible candidates. Aquitius, tribune of the first regiment of the Scutari men, knew to be harsh and uncultured. Januarius, a relative of Jovian, in supreme command in Illyricum, was too far distant, and at length one and all agreed to offer the diadem to Valentinian. The new emperor had not marched from Ancyra with the army, but had received orders to follow in due course with his regiment, the second scholar of Scutari. Thus, while messengers hastened his journey, the Roman world was for ten days without a master. Valentinian was a native of Pannonia. His father, Gratian, a peasant rope-seller of Sibylle, had early distinguished himself by his strength and bravery. Risen from the ranks, he had become successively protector, tribune, and general of the Roman forces in Africa. Accused of peculation, he remained for a time under a cloud, only to be given later the command of the legions of Britain. After his retirement, hospitality shown to Magnentius led to the confiscation of Gratian's property by Constantius but the services of the father made advancement easy for Valentinian. In Gaul, however, when acting under Julian's orders, he was dismissed from the army by Barbatio, but on Julian's ascension he re-enlisted. Valentinian's military capacity outweighed, even in the eyes of an apostate emperor, his pronounced Christianity, and an important command was given him in the Persian War. Later he had been sent on a mission to the west, bearing the news of Jovian's election, and from this journey he had but recently returned. The life story of Gratian and Valentinian is one of the most striking examples of the splendid career which lay open to talent in the Roman army. The father, a peasant unknown and without influence, by his ability rises to supreme command over Britain, while his son becomes emperor of Rome. It is hardly surprising that barbarians were ready to enter a service which offered to the capable soldier such prospects of promotion. It may also be noticed in passing that in the Council of Nicaea only military officers were considered as successors of Jovian. We do not hear of any civil administrator as a possible candidate for the vacant throne. From the very day of his ascension, the character of Valentinian was declared. When the crowd bade him name at once to co-Augustus, he replied that but an hour before, 
they had possessed the right to command, but that right now belonged to the emperor of their own creation. From the first, the stern glance and majestic bearing of Valentinian bowed men to his will. Through Nicomedia, he advanced to Constantinople, and here in the suburb of the Hebdomon, on the 28th of March, 364, he created his brother, Valens, co-emperor. He looked for loyal subjection and personal dependence, and he was not disappointed. With the rank of Augustus, Valens was content, in effect, to play the part of a Caesar. At Nisus, the military forces of the empire were divided, and many Pannonians were raised to high office. The new rulers were, however, careful to retain in their posts men who had been chosen both by Julian and Jovian. They wished to injure no susceptibilities by open partisanship. But even though Valentinian remained true to his constant principle of religious toleration and refused to favour the nominees either of a Christian or a pagan emperor, yet men traced a secret distrust and covert jealousy of those who had been Julian's intimates. Sallust, the all-powerful prefect, was removed and accusations were brought against the philosopher Maximus. When both emperors were attacked with fever, a commission of high imperial officials was appointed to examine whether the disease might not be due to secret arts. No shred of evidence of any unholy design was discovered, but the common rumour ran that the only object of the inquiry was to bring into disrepute the memory and the friends of Julian. Those who had been loyal to the old dynasty began to seek a leader. At Sirmium, the brothers parted, Valentinian for Milan, Valens for Constantinople. They each entered on their first consulship in the following year, 365. And as soon as the winter was passed, Valens travelled with all speed for Syria. It would seem that already the terms of the Thirty Years' Peace were giving rise to fresh difficulties. Too many questions remained open between Rome and Persia. But as yet it was not foreign invasion, but domestic rebellion which was to endanger the life and throne of Valens. When Procopius had laid the corpse of Julian to rest in Tarsus, he himself discreetly vanished from the sight of kings and courtiers. It was a perilous distinction to have enjoyed the peculiar favour of the dead emperor. Before long, however, he grew weary of his fugitive existence. Life as a hunted exile in the Crimea was too dearly bought. In desperation, he sailed secretly for the capital, where he found shelter in the friendly house of a senator, Strategius, while a eunuch, Eugenius by name, recently dismissed from the imperial service, put unlimited funds at his disposal. As he wandered unrecognised through the streets, on every hand he heard men muttering of the cruelty and avarice of Petronius, the father-in-law of Valens. The emperor himself was no longer in Constantinople, and popular discontent seemed only to need its champion. The regiments of the Divitenses and the Tungritani juniors, on their march from Bithynia for the defence of Thrace, were at the moment in the city. For two days Procopius negotiated with their officers. 
his gold and promises won their allegiance, and in their quarters at the Anastasian Baths, the soldiers met under cover of night and swore to support the usurpation. Leaving the ink pot and stool of the notary, so ran the scornful phrase of the court rhetorician, this stage figure of an emperor, hesitating to the last, assumed the purple and with stammering tongue harangued his followers. Any sensation was grateful to the populace, and they were content to accept without enthusiasm their new ruler. Those who had nothing to lose were ready enough to share the spoils, but the upper classes generally held aloof or fled to the court of Valens. None of them met Procopius as he entered the deserted Senate house. He relied for support upon men's devotion to the family of Constantine, as reinforcements bound for Thrace reached the capital. He came before them with Faustina, the widow of Constantius, by his side, while he himself bore her little daughter in his arms. He pleaded his own kinship to Julian, and the troops were won. Gamorius and Agillo, who had served Constantius well, were recalled from retirement and put at the head of the army, while to Julian's friend, Phronemius, was given the charge of the capital. Valentinian had advanced Pannonians, Procopius chose Gauls, for the Gallic provinces had most reason to remember Julian's services to the empire. Nebridius recently created Praetorian Prefect through the influence of Petronius, who held a prisoner and forced to write dispatches recalling Julius, who was in command in Thrace. The stratagem succeeded, and the province was won without a blow. The embassy to Illyricum, however, bearing the newly minted coinage of Procopius, was defeated by the vigilance of Aquitius. Every approach, whether through Dacia, Macedonia, or the pass of Succi, being effectually barred. The news of the revolt reached Valens as he was leaving Bithynia for Antioch, and he was only recalled from abject despair by the counsels of his friends. Procopius, with the Divitenses and a hastily collected force, had advanced to Nicaea. But before the approach of the Jovi and Victors, he retreated to Migdus on the Sangarius. Once more the soldiers yielded when he appealed to their loyalty to the house of Constantine. The troops of Valens deserting, the degenerate Pannonian, the drinker of miserable barley beer, went over to the usurper. One success followed another. Nicomedia was surprised by the tribune Rumitalka, who forthwith marched to the north. Valens, who was besieging Charleston, was taken unawares and forced to fly for his life to Ansira. Thus, Bithynia was won for Procopius. His fleet under Marcellus attacked Cyzicus, and when once the chain across the harbour's mouth was broken, the garrison surrendered. With the fall of Cyzicus, Valens had lost the mastery of the Hellespont, while he could expect no help from his brother, since Valentinian had determined that the safety of the whole Roman Empire demanded his presence on the western frontier. Thus, during the early months of 366, 
while Procopius endeavoured to raise funds for the future conduct of the war. Valens could only await the arrival of Lupicinus. The emperor's final victory was indeed mainly due to an ill-considered act of his rival. Arbicio, the retired general of Constantius, had supported the usurper, but had declined an invitation to his court, pleading the infirmities of old age and ill health. Procopius replied by an order that the general's house should be pillaged, thereby turning a friend into a bitter foe. Arbicio, on the appeal of Valens, joined the camp of Lupicinus. His arrival at once inspired the emperor with fresh hope and courage, and gave the signal for wholesale defections from the usurper's forces. In an engagement at Thyatira, Gamorius procured his own capture and carried with him many of his men. After the march of Valens into Phrygia, Agillo in his turn deserted when the armies met at Nacalia. The soldiers refused to continue the struggle. 26th of May, 366. Procopius was betrayed to the emperor by two of his own officers and was immediately put to death. Imperial suspicion and persecution had once again goaded a loyal subject to treason and to ruin. His severed head was borne beneath the walls of Philippopolis and the city surrendered to Aquatius. The ghastly trophy was even carried to Valentinian through the provinces of Gaul, lest loyalty to the memory of Julian should awake treason in the West. Valens could now avenge his terror and sash his avarice. The suppression of the rebellion was followed by a train of executions, burnings, proscriptions and banishments, which caused men to curse the victory of the lawful emperor. The plea of kinship with the family of Constantine had induced some thousands of the Gothic tribesmen on the Danube to cross the Roman frontier in support of Procopius. Valens refused to recognise their defence, and depriving them of their weapons, settled them in the cities along the north boundaries of the empire. When discontent declared itself, in fear of a general attack, he acted on his brother's advice, and marched in person to the Danube, and for the three succeeding years, 367 to 369, the Gothic campaign absorbed his attention. With Marseille as his base of operations, he crossed the river in 367 and 369. In the latter years, he conquered Athanarish, and during the autumn concluded an advantageous peace. The emperor and the Gothic Judex met on a ship in midstream for Athanarish professed himself bound by a fearful oath never to set foot upon Roman soil. During these years, Valens, pursuing in the east his brother's policy, strengthened the whole of the Danube frontier line with forts and garrisons. Valentinian may indeed be styled the frontier emperor. His title to fame is his restoration of the defences of Rome in the west against the surging barbarian hordes. He was a hard-worked soldier prince, and the one purpose which inspires his reign is his fixed determination never to yield an inch of Roman territory. He had always before his eyes the terrible warning of his predecessor. In the year 364, when the emperor was still at Milan, 
ambassadors from the Alemanni came to greet him on his ascension, and to receive the tribute which Roman pride disguised under the fairer name of gifts. Valentinian would not squander state funds in bounty to barbarians. The presents were small, while Ursatius, the magister officiorum, who took his cue from his master, treated the messengers with scant courtesy. They returned indignant to their homes, and in the early days of the new year, A.D. 365, the Alemanni burst plundering and ravaging across the frontier. Charietto, the count commanding in both Germanys, and the aged general Servianus, stationed at Cabellona, Chalons-sur-Seon, both fell before the barbarian onset. Gaul demanded Valentinian's presence. The emperor started for Paris in the month of October, and while on the march, news reached him of the revolt of Procopius. The report gave no details. He did not know whether Valens were alive or dead. But with that strong sense of imperial duty, which dignifies the characters of the 4th century emperors, he subordinated utterly the personal interest to the common weal. Procopius is but my brother's enemy and my own, he repeated to himself, and the Alemanni are the foes of the Roman world. Arrived at Paris, it was from that city that he dispatched Dagalifus against the Alemanni. Autumn was fast giving place to winter. The tribesmen had scattered, and the new general was dilatory and inactive. He was recalled to become consul with the emperor's son Gratian, January 366, and Jovinus, as magister equitum, took his place at the head of the Roman troops. Three successive victories virtually concluded the campaign. At Scarpona, Sharpain, one band of barbarians was surprised and defeated, while another was massacred on the Moselle. In negligent security, the Alemanni on the riverbank were drinking, washing, and dyeing their hair red, when from the fringe of the forest, the Roman legionaries poured down upon them. Jovinus then undertook a further march, and pitched his camp at Chalons-sur-Marne. Here there was a desperate engagement with a third force of the enemy. The withdrawal during the Battle of the Tribune, Bolshebordes, seriously endangered the army's safety. But at length the day was won. The Alemanni lost 6,000 killed and 4,000 wounded. Of the Romans, 200 were wounded and 1,200 killed. In the pursuit, Ascari in the Roman service captured the barbarian king and in the heat of the moment he was struck dead. After a few lesser encounters, resistance was for the time at an end. It was probably his interest in this campaign, which had led Valentinian to spend the early months of 366 at Reims. He now returned to Paris, and from the latter city advanced, end of June 366, to meet his successful general, whom he nominated for consulship in the succeeding year. At the same time, the head of Procopius reached him from the east, but in the high tide of success, he was struck down with a serious illness, winter 366-7. to The court was already considering possible candidates for the purple 
when Valentinian recovered, but realising the dangers for the West, which might arise from a disputed succession, at Amiens on the 24th of August 367, he procured from the troops the recognition of the seven-year-old Gratian and co-Augustus. It may well have been the necessity for defending the northern coast against raids of Franks and Saxons, which had summoned Valentinian to Amiens, and now on his way from that town to Trier, tidings reached him of a serious revolt in Britain. Full of foul days, the Roman general, together with Nectaridus, the commander of the coastline, Count of the Saxon shore, had both met their deaths. In the autumn of 367, Severus, Count of the Imperial Guards, was dispatched to the island only to be recalled. Jovinus appointed in his place, sent Provertides in advance to raise levies, while in view of the constant reports of fresh disasters, the Count Theodosius, the father of Theodosius the Great, was ordered to sail for Britain at the head of Gaelic reinforcements. From Boulogne he landed at Rutapai, Richborough, spring 368, and was followed by the Batava, Heroli, Jovi and Victors. Scenes of hopeless confusion met him on his arrival. Dicalidonus and Virturionus, the two divisions of the Picts, Atacotai and Scotti, Irish, all ranged pillaging over the countryside, while Frank and Saxon marauders swept down in forays on the coast. Theodosius marched towards London, and it would seem made this city his headquarters. Defeating the scattered troops of spoil-laden barbarians, he restored the greater part of the booty to the harassed provincials, while deserters were recalled to the standard by promises of pardon. From London, where he spent the winter, Theodosius prayed the emperor to appoint men of wide experience to govern the island, Civilis as pro-prefect, and Dulcitius as general. In this year, too, he probably cooperated with imperial troops on the continent in the suppression of Frank and Saxon pirates in the Low Countries and about the mouths of the Rhine and Wall. Valentinian himself advanced as far north as Cologne in the autumn of 368. In the year 369, Theodosius everywhere surprised the barbarians and swept the country clear of their robber bands. Town fortifications were restored, forts rebuilt and frontiers re-garrisoned, while the Ariani, a treacherous border militia, were removed. Territory in the north was recovered, and a new fifth province of Valencia, or Valentinia, created. The revolt of Valentinus, who had been exiled to Britain on a criminal charge, was easily crushed by Theodosius, who repressed with a strong hand the treason trials which usually followed the defeat of an unsuccessful usurper. When he sailed for Gaul, probably in the spring of 370, he left the provincials leaping for very joy. On his return to the court, he was appointed to succeed Jovinus as Magister Equitum before end of May 370. While his lieutenant had been restoring order in Britain, Valentinian had been actively engaged in Gaul. 
the winter of 367 to 8, the emperor spent at Reims, preparing for his vengeance upon the disturbers of the peace in the west. But the new year opened with a disaster, for while the Christian inhabitants of Mainz were keeping festival, Epiphany, 368, the Aylman prince Rando surprised and sacked the town. The Romans, however, gained a treacherous advantage by the murder of King Withacab, and in the summer of the same year, the emperor, together with his son, invaded the territory between Neckar and Rhine. Our authorities give us no certain information as to his route. Perhaps he advanced by the Rhine road, and then turned off by Ettlingen and Forzheim. Solicinium, near Rottenburg, on the left bank of the Neckar, was the scene of the decisive struggle. The barbarians occupied a strong position on a precipitous hill. The Romans experienced great difficulty in dislodging them, but were at length successful, and the enemy fled over the Neckar by Lopadunum towards the Danube. The advantage thus gained was secured by the building of a strong fort, apparently at Altrip, and for its erection it seems possible that the ruins of Lopadunum were employed. The emperor spent the winter in Trier, and with the new year, 369, based his great work of frontier defence extending from the province of Raetia to the ocean. Valentinian even sought to plant his fortresses in the enemy's territory. This was regarded by the Alamanni as a breach of treaty rights, and the Romans suffered a serious reverse at the Mons Piri, Heidelberg. The emperor accordingly entered into negotiations with the Burgundians, who were to attack the Alamanni with the support of the Roman troops. The Burgundians, long at feud with their neighbours over the possession of some salt springs on their borders, gladly accepted the emperor's overtures and appeared in immense force on the Rhine. The confederates seemed more terrible than the foe. Valentinian was absent superintending the building of his new forts, and feared either to accept or refuse the assistance of such dangerous allies. He sought to gain time by inaction, and the Burgundians, infuriated at his betrayal, were forced to withdraw, since the Alamanni threatened to oppose their homeward march. Meanwhile, Theodosius, newly arrived in Gaul from Britain, swept upon the distracted Alamanni from Raetia, and after a successful campaign, was able to settle his captives as farmers in the valley of the Po. Macrian, king of the Alamanni, had been the heart and soul of his people's resistance to Rome, with the intention, therefore, of capturing this dangerous enemy by a sudden surprise. In September 371, Valentinian, accompanied by Theodosius, left Mainz for Aqua Matiacae, but with the troops, the opportunities for pillage outweighed the emperor's strictest orders. The smoke of burning homesteads betrayed the Roman approach. The army advanced some fifty miles, but the purpose of the expedition was defeated, and the emperor returned disappointed to Trier. Meanwhile, in the east, time only served to show the futility of Jovian's peace with Persia. Rome had sacrificed much but had settled nothing. 
Sir Paul claimed that under the treaty he could do as he would with Armenia, which still remained the apple of discord as before, and that Rome had relinquished any right to interfere. But it was precisely this claim that Rome could never in the last resort allow. Armenia under Persian rule was far too great a menace. The chronology of the events which followed the treaty must remain to some extent a matter of conjecture. But from the first, Sir Paul seems to have enforced his conception of his rights, seeking in turn by bribes and forays to reduce Armenia to Persian vassalage. Valens, as early as 365, was on his way to the Persian frontier when he was recalled by the revolt of Procopius. At the close of the year 368, or at the beginning of 369, Sir Paul got possession of King Arsaces, whom he put to death some years later. In 369, it would appear, Persia interfered in the affairs of Hiberia. Suramaces, ruling under Roman protection, was expelled, and Aspacures, a Persian nominee, was made king. In Armenia, the fortress of Artagirk, Artagoressa, where the Queen Ferransom had taken refuge, was besieged, 369, while her son Pap, acting on his mother's counsel, fled to the protection of Valens. In his flight, he was assisted by Silices and Artabans, Armenian renegades, who now proved disloyal to their Persian master. The exile was well received and accorded at home at Neo-Caesarea, when Musjay, the Armenian general, prayed that the emperor would take effective action and stay the ravages of Persia. Valens hesitated. He felt that his hands were tied by the terms of the peace of Jovian. Terentius, the Roman ducks, accompanied Pap on his return to Armenia but without the support of the legions, the prince was powerless. Artajerk fell in the 14th month of the siege, winter 370. Ferransom was hurried away to her death, and Pap was forced to flee into the mountains, which lay between Lazica and the Roman frontier. Here he remained in hiding for five months. Persian pillage and massacre proceeded unchecked until Sapor could leave his generals in command of the army, while two Armenian nobles were entrusted with the civil government of the country and with the introduction of the Magian religion. At length Valens took action, and the Count Arinthius, acting in concert with Terentius and Adeus, was sent to Armenia to place Pap upon the throne and to prevent the commission of further outrage by Persia. In May 371, the emperor himself left Constantinople, slowly journeying towards Syria. Sapor's next move was an attempt to win Pap by promises of alliance, counselling him to be no longer the puppet of his ministers. The ruse was successful, and the king put to death both Silices and Artabanes. Meanwhile, a Persian embassy complained that the protection of Armenia by Rome was a breach of her obligations under the treaty. In April 372, Valens reached Antioch, 
His answer to Persia was further interference in Iberia. While Mushay invaded Persian territory, Terentius, with twelve legions, restored Saramaces as ruler over the country, bordering on Lazica and Armenia. Support on his side, making great preparations for a campaign in the following spring, raising levies from the surrounding tribes and hiring mercenaries. In 373, Trajan and Vadimar marched to the east with a formidable army, having strict orders not to break the peace, but to act on the defensive. The emperor himself moved to Herapolis in order to superintend the operations from that city. At Vagabanta, Bagavan, the Romans were forced to engage and in the result were victorious. A truce was concluded at the end of the summer, and while Sapor retired to Tessiphon, Valens took up his residence in Antioch. End of section 26